Welcome to another episode of Mormon Expression. I am your host, Matthew Crowley. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am a, a litigator who lives in the beautiful Piedmont region of Virginia. We have uh, assembled with us tonight a uh, all-star cast um, of panelists, starting with Amy. Hi, Amy. Hey, how are y'all doing? Sounds like not very good. <laughs> <laughs> Heather. Hello. Welcome, Heather. How are you? Uh, thank you for having me, and I'm doing pretty good. And last but not least, we have Brant. Hi, hey, Brant. I'm waiting. How's it going, buddy? I'm waiting for some sort of a setup because you're never this nice to Brant. <laughs> Do you know? Well, yeah, I'm saving it for later in the podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm laying <laughs> wait a little bit. Don't make me spring the trap yet. I figured that's what it was. He's got he's got to butter me up a little bit, and then he'll nail me. Mmm, <laughs> butter. <laughs> I'm nailing. <laughs> Love butter. That's the opposite of the way I thought those two things would come out of each of your mouths. The fact that they came out of either of their mouths is disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should talk about food instead. <laughs> so anyway, we are. Uh, we are assembled tonight to talk about the topic of uh, the things, the doctrines that are that are missing from the Book of Mormon, uh, and we've done this in the form of uh, another top ten list. We're planning on uh, taking a look at some of the most distinctive doctrines or features of Mormonism that uh, appear to be absent from the Book of Mormon. So, to kind of frame this and set it up, the Book of Mormon is unquestionably the thing that the church is best known for, and that has been true from more or less uh, the beginning. It's certainly true in pop culture today, right? Mm -hmm. So when Parker and Stone make a musical to satire the Mormons, they don't call it the Mormon musical or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints musical, it's the Book of Mormon musical. Um, and I think it's all, if familiar to all of us that it's the primary tool uh, that missionaries and members of the church use to bring people to the church. Uh, it works like this. So you, you read the Book of Mormon, you have a good feeling about it, which means it's true. If the book's true, then Joseph Smith was a prophet. If Joseph was a prophet, then the church is true and all of the teachings are true. And Joseph wrote in the introduction to the Book of Mormon, I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. And a man would get near to God by abiding its precepts than by any other book. Um, and, of course, we all recall from our lessons uh, growing up that uh, if a keystone fails, then the whole arch falls apart. So the book is really, really important. And it's in, the book itself tells about uh, hundreds of years of record keepers meticulously guarding it and writing in it. Um, it says over and over again that only the most important things are written there. And Joseph Smith tells us uh, the reason for this in his history. Um, and this is in uh, Joseph Smith History uh, 1 verse 34, and he's speaking now of what uh, the angel Moroni said to him. He said, there was a book deposited, written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent and the source from which they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it, as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. I want to read one more scripture. There's a, another. This is DNC 18, and it's directed to all of Cow Oliver Cowdery. And, and keep in mind, this is written in 1829, prior to there being any scripture apart from the Book of Mormon at that point. 
Now behold, because of the thing which you, my servant Oliver Cowdery, have desired to know of me, I give unto you these words. Behold, I have manifested unto you by my spirit in many instances that the things which you have written are true. Wherefore, you know that they are true. And if you know that they are true, behold, I give unto you a commandment that you rely upon the things which are written. For in them are all things written concerning the foundation of my church, my gospel, and my rock. Wherefore, if you shall build up my church upon the foundation of my gospel and my rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And that's speaking there of the Book of Mormon. So from those two things, I think we could fairly imagine uh, at least in Joseph's eyes, that the Book of Mormon ought to contain a fullness and ought to contain all things concerning the foundation of the church, um, which is, I think, what most people would think of as meaning it would be complete. So it's from this that we begin to ask the question, if there are all sorts of things that are contained in modern church doctrine, to the extent that there's such a thing as modern church doctrine, that aren't in the Book of Mormon, then how do we explain that? Uh, how does the church explain that? And of course, as uh, we'll talk about here, most of the truly novel things about Mormonism came later. Um, and the first uh, Mormonism, I argue, is much more of a vanilla Protestantism than the church that comes later, but we can get to that. So anyone else have uh, any thoughts based on my comments? Well, <clears throat> um, the way you lay it out, yeah, it, it does sound like the Book of Mormon is supposed to contain everything. Basically, if you were to look at the modern church now, and if you were to to look at everything in the Book of Mormon, that they should all match up. But and, and I have a feeling we're probably going to come back to this time and time again. If you wouldn't mind, I'm going to open my scriptures, and you might even be able to hear the wonderful uh, onion the pages. Heather, can um, you yeah. mute this microphone? <laughs> no. Um, <clears throat> Amy, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> I'm sorry, um, Brand. Go go no. ahead with your scripture reading. This this is from the title page of the Book of Mormon which is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord has done for their fathers, blah, 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 and also to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. I mean, I, I know that's such a a, um, a lame apologetic argument, but, it, you know, it, it's important to throw out there because if you talk to most LDS people, they're going to bring that up and they're going to say, well, uh, you know, things changed and the church changed and see that scripture, that title page right there, you know that that's going to show that uh, some of these things that we're going to talk about aren't in there. My theory is is basically this: the church, in my opinion, is an ever evolving church. We like to say that it's based off of the original church that Christ created, but it's not because times have changed and the whole the entire world has changed from that time period. And I, I know it's probably going to be a, a source of uh, fuel for the rest of you, but that's just kind of the way that I look at a lot of those statements and a lot of the things we're going to talk about is it's it, it happens over the course of an evolving church. The only problem I see with that is that the Mormon church is a church that claims to be the one true church. And it's a quite a it's quite a stark contradiction to say that this book should contain the fullness of the gospel, but then on the other hand to say, well, it's an evolving church, because then what you open yourself up to is uh, questioning the, the doctrines and practices that are in place today and whether or not they really truly are eternal principles if they didn't exist in the past and if it's an evolving church they might change in the future so one ha it's in my opinion one has to go either the really strongly worded one true church truth claims or 
the uh, it's okay for the church to evolve claim. But but at yeah. the same time, I'd also respond to you and say, you could say the same thing about, and, and you know, it, it different strokes for different folks, but you could say the same thing about, you know, we we look at the Old Testament as as divinely inspired canon. They talk about a ton of of different um, dietary practices and health practices and just everyday life practices that we don't do, yet we still claim to be the one true church and and that rhetoric is still out there. But we don't do those things that they did in the Old Testament, but we still but, consider that to be part of the canon. But Brant, would you say based on the the part from the introduction that you read that you know with the understanding that the purpose of the book is intended to be to convincing people that Jesus is the Christ, that at a minimum that you would have all of the essential things contained in that? Or, or if not, what would you expect to be in the book that's purpose is to convince people that Jesus is the Christ? Is there anything other than just him, him appearing that you would expect there? Or, or, or how, do you, how do you resolve that in your own mind? I hope you're not going to put me on the spot, but there are additional... Well, I just did, pal. What's your answer? Well, no, I... <laughs> I hope you're not going to put me on the spot for the second part because I have a feeling uh, this isn't going to go over very well. But at the same time, there are things in there that give – I won't say they give new insight, but that give additional depth to some of the core principles of uh, faith, baptism, and the Holy Ghost and some of those core uh, doctrinal principles. There are things in there that give more depth and more breadth to it. So I would throw that out there. Um, but well, I, I think I think you passed the test in uh, Ezra Taft Benson's eyes. Did anybody else uh, run across this quote? And I, I'm just going to quote this. This is from uh, the Seminary Student's Guide. It says, President Ezra Taft Benson taught that when the Lord said the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel, it, quote, does not mean it contains every teaching, every doctrine ever revealed. Rather, it means in the Book of Mormon we find the fullness of those doctrines required for our salvation, and they are taught plainly and simply so that even children can learn the ways of salvation and exaltation, close quote. So, I mean, I think that the church's official position is that you should not expect it to contain everything, but that you should expect it to contain the fundamental things, the things that are required for your salvation. And I think that's going to be interesting to think about as we go through our list, which we, we need to begin to do soon, because I think that the negative implication of that is that anything that we might find on our list that's not contained in the Book of Mormon is not required for your salvation. Well, well, hold on. I want to, I want to get into a, uh, into a quote pissing contest with you. Um, did well, anyone see the Harold <laughs> B. Lee quote about what does the fullness of the gospel mean? Hit yeah. us with it. All right, real quickly. Now our scoffers say, how can you say the Book of Mormon has the fullness of the gospel when it doesn't speak of baptism for the dead? Some of you have asked that question. What is the gospel defined? And I won't read it because he quotes uh, DNC 39, 5, and 6. Um, wherever you have a restoration of the gospel, where those fundamental ordinances and the power of the Holy Ghost are among men, there you have the power by which the Lord can reveal all things that pertain to the kingdom in detail. Don't you see, including baptism for the dead, and I'll add as an aside something that we're going to get into later, which he has done in our day. That is what the prophet Joseph Smith meant when he questioned, how does your church differ from all the other churches? And his answer was simple. We are different from all the all other churches because we have the Holy Ghost. Therein, we have the teachings of the fullness of those essentials in the Book of Mormon upon the foundation of which the kingdom of God is established. Now, that kind of gets back to your point, but it kind of gets to my point, too. So before we dive into the um, the list— 
can we briefly get make up our own list on the spot of what we would consider to be the core or fundamental doctrines that are required for our salvation and exaltation? Would seem to me it would be baptism, gift mm-hmm. of the Holy Ghost, getting a testimony, and then your temple ordinances, right? Right. Well, the yeah, which article of faith is that? Um, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost. Four? Yep, number four. Yeah, and then from there, I, I think that it would be what they refer to as saving ordinances, um, which I think would include um, the temple and da- the washing and anointing, the temple endowment, and then uh, Celestial the sealing. And I mean, I'm, and am I leaving men. anything out? Uh, Melchizedek priesthood for men. Right, Melchizedek priesthood for men. Second uh, washing and anointing for Brant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, someday. We'll, we'll I know. I know you can't talk about it, but someday. <laughs> One thing that I wanted to mention before we move on, actually, two things, and that is. When people talk about the Book of Mormon being the most correct book, I think one thing that they fail to, and this is coming from an apologetic standpoint, they fail to really pick up on is that most part. That caveat basically allows that Mormonism is not claiming that it is the most perfect. It's the most perfect or the most correct. So it's kind of allowing themselves that out for it may not be everything um, and also, and this is what I was just thinking of when, Brant, you were talking, I think when members, when Mormons are talking about the Book of Mormon, or they're talking about the gospel, they're literally talking about their triple combination. So when they talk about the fullness of the gospel or the Book of Mormon, they're kind of in their minds, I think, referring to the Bible, the Book of Mormon, um, the Pearl of Great Price, and all of those things together. So I think it's, kind of a way that they that Mormons think about the gospel or their scriptures and not so much that oh well it's not in the book of Mormon therefore it doesn't exist because I think for them they're looking at their scriptures as one encyclopedia as it were I don't know I'm do I don't know if that makes any sense but I I think for a lot of Mormons this doesn't matter because to them it's in the scriptures so what if it's not in the book of Mormon it's in the scriptures I agree. No, I, I I agree with that, and and especially because I think most people are going to lump all the restoration and the quote unquote restoration scriptures, Book of Mormon, DNC, and then the Pearl of Great Price. They're going to lump all those together. So I, you know, you could theoretically say, yeah, we don't talk about temples in the Book of Mormon, but see, we do it in the uh, in the DNC. Doctrine and Covenants, so it's okay. Well, and I think that for a lot of members, they, for me, for me, growing up. I wasn't really aware of the separateness of any of those books until I got much, much older. So it wouldn't even be, well, it's in the Doctrine and Covenants, because to me, that is the Book of Mormon. Yep. Me, I was in the same boat as you. And I think that, I think that is a reasonable thing. Well, I don't, I don't mean reasonable in that I find it okay that that's the way Mormons view it, but I think it's reasonable to expect that because it's bound together as one book. It's not really you know, taught as if it were three separate books, um, at least not in a way that people pick up on. But looking looking at it as a critical outsider that I am now, I think, but don't you understand that all of the DNC was basically written after the Book of Mormon, you know? So it it, it, is, it is problematic that it's not mentioned in the Book of Mormon and it is in, in DNC because that means it popped up later. But that's just my See, mean take it, it, on the whole thing. 
And, and and I think that if you're you know if you grew up thinking these are all the same thing or else you know they're all they all exist within our canon, it just demonstrates that we're all you know victims of abuse at the hands of correlation. I'm, I'm kidding about abuse, but because when you you get the lesson manuals and you go through the the correlated materials, um, you know in in all kinds of settings. They essentially lay out the doctrines and the narratives, and then they use the scriptures as proof texts. And that's true. And that's true of all of them. That's not. They don't just mine the Old Testament or the New Testament for things that are favorable. They they do that to the doctrine and covenants, maybe most of all. Um, I mean, as an aside, uh, you know, the the doctrine and covenants is the biggest source of uncorrelated material out there, and in, including all kinds of you know things that people would think are strange if they ever read it. Um, but you never, I mean, if, uh, you know, a couple years before I left the church, I taught uh, uh, Doctrine and Covenants in uh, Gospel Doctrine, and it's organized by topic. It's not organized, you know, chronologically. Uh, it's just simply by topic, and, you know, you mine the different scriptures for, um, you know, whatever would be there that would support what you're talking about. So it's easy to understand how they've correlated to correlated it to make it feel like it's the whole thing. But, it, but Heather, I agree with you. Once you step back from that and say, you know, let's look at the New Testament just by itself, or even the books just by themselves. Let's look at the Book of Mormon by itself. Let's look at the Doctrine and Covenants by itself. Um, the, the, the thing, the question that comes to my mind, and that I think that's pertinent to our discussion, is, you know, Lehi leaves Jerusalem in, in 600 BC in the book, and then, you know, when does the book end? Is it in the was in the five or five or six hundred A.D. I've lost lost sight of that. I think it's six hundred. Okay, so in well over a thousand years of the church being, you know, supposedly in the Americas, they don't ever evolve to any, you know, most of the things that we're talking about here: the forms of priesthood, the temple worship, the ordinances. For some reason, those things never show up there, and I, I think it's pertinent to ask, is that because they didn't need those things? Does God have some different way of doing it now? Or, you know, as I'm going to argue, does this just represent an, an evolution of what, you know, Joseph Smith was thinking in terms of his his own theology? Is, is it more parsimonious to simply follow from the Book of Mormon, which, as I say, to me looks, doesn't have a whole lot that would offend a Protestant. Um, you know, uh, other than, you know, Jesus Christ visiting the Americas to, you know, what you find in the Doctrine and Covenants, which is well off the beaten Protestant path. Just real quick, the last page of the Book of Mormon says about A.D. 421. No, I think there's also a third, uh, there's a third um, possibility, Matt, which is, and I'll have to continue to look for the quote or the scripture or the comment, I, but that was that many of the things that Jesus or that God gave to the Nephites was too numerous and in a language that couldn't even be understood. So that it's very uh, probable that the things that God was teaching the people in the Americas couldn't even be comprehended and, and weren't recorded for that reason. Actually, I um in my studying up for this episode, uh, I stumbled across an article from the Ensign in 1984, and it Ooh, talks about. Is that what you want, the one you were reading about? Is um, how yeah. there's there's our language can't yep. adequately express those ideas, and and it won't be until pure Adamic comes back that we'll actually know what was in exactly. the Book of Mormon. Yeah, but, but, exactly. But that, but that wouldn't be related to to current priesthood or temple practice or any of those things, right? Because we do have words. And, and concepts for those things. So maybe there were things 
that they understood that we can't understand, but the things that we have and understand, they seem to not have. So yeah. I'm not sure that would be an explanation for, you know, why. And, and, and by the way, I mean, if, if you were just to take out all of the, and it came to passes and, <laughs> you know, so much of the, the repetitive language that's in there that, that just sounds to me like a, a stream of consciousness, um, it would have cleared up a lot of room to, you know, add some additional <laughs> important things. I, I always find the explanation of, well, you know, the, they only had limited room and the metal was precious and they could only put the most important things. But that, that only makes sense until you actually pick the book up and read it and, and you know, see all of those, you know, filler words. So that, that's not a very persuasive uh, apologetic answer to me for that reason. Well, aren't you a nitpicky apostate? Well, yeah. <laughs> kinda, Are you I just a word think. counter? Well, let's yeah, get on with our list. We just can't make any of you apostates happy, can we? No. Oh, sure. You can make me happy, Brant, by starting with number one on the list. Ten. We're starting with ten. We go backwards. Or number ten. Matt, make me happy. Start with number ten. There's so many other ways I'd like to make you happy, but we'll. I guess we. Can, I, I guess we. I guess we can go with this. I guess we can go with this. So, the the first thing that we have on the list. Speaking of. Uh, I think I've mentioned priesthood a couple times, is I think the way we've laid it out is the difference between the Aaronic and, and Melchizedek priesthoods, but I'll maybe frame it even larger and just say the difference between the priesthood that you find in the Book of Mormon and the priesthood that you find now. So, you know, real quick overview, the priesthood as Mormons see it now is essentially God delegating some of his powers to man. He it said for whatever reason you know, can't do all these things himself or has a reason to not do himself do it himself. So it's delegated uh, to other people. He's the principal; they're the agents. In the modern church, there's two priesthoods. One's what they call the preparatory, which is the Aaronic priesthood. It has offices of, of deacon, teacher, priest. Um, I think bishop is a is an office in the Aaronic priesthood, right, Brant? Yes, it is. I think so. Basically, all worthy boys are given this when they're 12 years old. And these priesthood holders in the different offices can pass the sacrament. They prepare the sacrament. Um, they can even perform baptisms, but they can't do you know, blessings or any of the other sort of bigger ministerial um, things that you would find in the, excuse me, in the Melchizedek priesthood. So the second one is the Melchizedek priesthood, and basically. A man, when he turns 18, if he can pass the interview, gets the Melchizedek priesthood. He's then ordained to an elder within that priesthood. He can later become a well, high hold on, priest. Hold on. If he's if he's found worthy, if he's worthy, it's not like you're passing an interview like a job interview. It's if you're found worthy to hold the Melchizedek priesthood. It's exactly like that. But it, it sounds like it's only contingent on the fact that he turns 18. I mean, what really has to happen in order for someone to be worthy other than being male and 18? Well, I mean, you can't drink, you can't smoke. Obviously. You, you, you can't be fooling around with your girlfriend. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure what else is in I, mean, I, I think they have some basic testimony questions in there. Um, I mean, and, and it's I'm, basically, can, can you pass the temple recommend questions? That's basically yeah, and I, and, I, and I realize I'm, I realize I'm glossing over that, and I'm, worthiness is, is a decent shorthand for that. I, I, I agree with you, Brant. Um, but so if you're worthy, um, then you have that conferred on you. Um, they're, they're elders, they're high priests, what, whatever, does anybody know whatever happened to the seventies? I remember there used to be seventies when I was a kid there and that that was now. some other office, but they did away with that or something. Does anyone know? There are seventies um, now. Well, I don't mean, I don't be, mean general um, authorities. I mean, like within your ward, you would have a seventies quorum. Huh? It, it used to be the old people. Yeah. The, really the old way old. Mm. 
Anyway, that's all I remember. So, so this Melchizedek priesthood, it has basically all of the powers um, that God has delegated to man. There's the blessing of the sick. There's the gift of the Holy Ghost, um, the power to organize the church, the keys to prophecy, seership, revelation, casting out devils, temple ordinances, and building malls. So uh, there's a lot of... Yes, thank you. But there's a lot of emphasis in the modern church for the need for the priesthood to be um, literally conferred by the laying on of hands. And uh, Brand, I don't know if you've ever done this. You can actually write to church headquarters and get a paper that shows your line of authority. I was, you know, I got the priesthood from my dad who got it from this person who got it from this person. So let me dive in a little bit to, to priesthood the idea of priesthood in the Book of Mormon. So Jesus has good company and not they're not really being any mention of most of the other, you know, prophets or, or main characters in the Book of Mormon re- receiving an ordination. There's some sort of oblique references to that they that they received an ordination after, you know, a certain order, but there isn't isn't really much specific about it. Um so there there are not separate priesthoods in the Book of Mormon. And in fact the whole concept of priesthood only gets seven mentions. The word priesthood only gets seven mentions in the Book of Mormon. All of them are in the Book of Alma, and six of them are in Alma 13. And in that chapter, he's referring to the high priesthood as being something that's conferred for the purpose of teaching people. So, and this leads into there are also numerous mentions of the Book of Mormon in in the Book of Mormon of you know you you often have a prophet king. Um, King Benjamin is an example of that, and they will ordain teachers and priests. There are a bunch of mentions of of teachers and priests being ordained. Now, these aren't the kind of teachers and priests that you know you think about as uh, preparing the sacrament and you know blessing it in, in sacrament meeting. Um, when you look at what they're doing, they're essentially uh, going about teaching, and in some cases, are sort of traveling ministers and. Usually when you see the word teacher, you also see the word priest. So they're used in combination frequently. Um, the first, I think the first time that that happens is that Nephi ordains his brothers Jacob and Joseph as teachers and priests over the people. And occasionally you'll see the word elder added to that list. But at least from what you then see those people do, you don't have any real clear idea that they are performing any ministerial or priestly function. They're, they're essentially charismatic traveling, you know, people who, who teach and who, who do some ministering to me, that's interesting because I think that that's, I think my personal opinion is that where Joseph gets that is that those are the preachers that he would have encountered in his youth. There were a lot of charismatic traveling preachers and teachers who were, were around. Um, the way that I, you know, I imagine they behaved is not all that different than you see these teachers and priests in the book of Mormon, but there really is little or no, mention of an ecclesiastical uh, hierarchy. And, and like I say, I, I think they just look a lot more like the, the people that uh, you would have had in, in, in Joseph's time. Any any comments based on that, or shall I go on? Like you said, it does make some oblique references to being a part of the high priesthood. There was never any sort of description 
that looked like modern day applications of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood in their separate forms. Well, you're right. I mean, the, the modern priesthood, I mean, certainly there is teaching and ministering, but it is, I mean, it's a hierarchical system. Um, I mean, the, the priesthood is the form of government right. that, 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 you know, God's kingdom on earth has. There's, there's really nothing in the Book of Mormon about that beyond they're simply, um, you know, being a prophet king. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me about that is that you have this hierarchical, you know, patriarchal setup in, in the modern church. You've got that today. You seem to not have it in the Book of Mormon. But the thing that's interesting to me about that is that where do these people come from? Where does Lehi come from? He comes from a society. He comes from a people that do have a hierarchical priesthood. They had Levites and they had priests. Levites were from the tribe of Levi, and the priests were descendants of Aaron. And in each generation, and then this part's interesting to me as their talk, because you do get high priest in the Book of Mormon. Um, in each generation where there is a temple president, there is a single high priest um, again, who's a descendant of Aaron, who is over the other priests. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have anything that tells us that Lehi is a Levite or that he's a priest, but yet we see him doing things that, that look, you know, sort of like he might be exercising the priesthood. I mean, he's referred to as a prophet. He builds an altar and does sacrifices, although, again, not clear, you know, where he would get the authority to do a sacrifice like that. He does other things that a, that a modern Mormon might expect a prophet to do, like, like prophesy, you know, like Thomas Monson prophesies all the time. But neither he or anyone else in the Book of Mormon who's a prophet, priest, or teacher is doing any of the stuff that you, not only that you would see them doing now, but that you would expect someone who is observing the law of Moses to do. Cer certainly not any of the priesthood duties or sacrifices that are associated with the temple or what you would think that their counterparts in Palestine are doing now. You do have well, a reference. Go, Brant. Go ahead. I was going to say that I, I will say this. You, know, I, you're making valid points. Don't don't get me wrong. You are making valid points, but I'm sitting here thinking to myself, yes, that doesn't apply to to the the current LDS Church now. But if you think about the way it was, really up until probably the eh, 1920s, that's the way it was. They they fully bought into all this kind of stuff. Like they, what, what kind of stuff are you talking say, about? What I'm trying to say is, um, I don't have exact dates and figures offhand, but it wasn't uncommon for a man to hold the ironic priesthood for almost all of his life. It wasn't uncommon for there to be smaller numbers of people that were ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood because they valued it to be a lot more. It wasn't uncommon for them to travel as ministers, as you would see in the Book of Mormon. And different things that are mirrored in the Book of Mormon, you would see that in the early church development and in especially within the early Utah development, you know, basically up until about the 1920s when they became a part of the United States and they got noticed. So what I'm saying is while you look at that now and say, well, yeah, we don't have any of that stuff in there now, I'm also saying we don't have a lot of stuff from the original church in here now. So is this a Book of Mormon problem? Or is this just a modernizing church problem? I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's an issue of of modernizing, but also of you know simply an evolution of, you know, of, of what Joseph thought. Because I mean, I think it's a point well taken that you look at the early church, and yeah, I mean the you know the the quorum of the twelve apostles was over you know all of you know everything that was outside of you know of Zion, and they were they were essentially traveling 
you know, missionaries, teachers, and ministers, which is, you know, very much, like I say, it's in the, it's in the mold of what, you know, Joseph would have experienced with the tent revivals. That's what those guys did too. And so the early church, you know, governance, the early uh, prophets and apostles, you see them doing the same thing. I agree with you that it takes some time um, before you see sort of the shift to those being, more, I mean, it might be harsh to call them bureaucratic jobs, but I mean, in a lot of senses today, they are bureaucratic jobs. And you know, maybe that's, you know, part and parcel with you know, the growth of the church and having property to manage and, you know, lots of people to, to, to minister to. Um, but, but to me, it's just, uh, you know, simply a, an evolution of, of what Joseph thought and maybe an evolution of, of, you know, what Brigham did with the church once they, once they got to Utah, I mean, does that make sense to you? No, it it, it does, and and that's kind of the point that I I think I'm trying to make is is simply the fact of and we've you know we've had discussions about it. We've had um, <coughs> excuse me, at least on the podcast, we've had someone like uh, Rock Waterman come on and discuss this concept of pure Mormonism and how much the church has changed from where it used to be. But um, and and I will admit that the um you know you brought up the tent revivals you brought along the, the traveling ministers and the fact that you can kind of see that mimicked within the Book of Mormon. I, I will admit that is uh, I wouldn't say it's damning evidence, but it is it is evidence that needs to be examined. Yeah, and 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 I guess I would I would make this this final uh, you know apostate point. It's my final point anyway. Probably need to move down the list. Um, is that I you know there's so much emphasis in the church now on, you know, the authority of file leaders, the idea that, um, you know, that you need to follow your local leader, that you need to, you know, follow what the prophets say and, and, and what the apostles say. And, you know, you have this very hierarchical system that you're, you know, even though you have something recently where they say, well, you know, they're not always talking for God, um, you know, you're, you're supposed to, you know, fall in line with them because they, you know, sort of have this direct channel up the line to uh, to God Himself, and and that just seems to, you know, not really be what you see the function of the priesthood being in the Book of Mormon or the early church. Now, maybe you know, from an uh, apologetic point of view, you can say, well, that represents, you know, progress and represents something good. I'll just come back and say, well, then, you know, why would they have not had that uh, in the Book of Mormon? But that's that's my final point on that. Does anyone else have another comment or do we want to move on to the next thing in the list? I'm ready to move on. So I'm next, right? Yeah. So hit okay. it, Brant. So we're going to talk about polygamy and the endorsement of polygamy. This one's going to be an interesting one because of the famous scripture in Jacob, which talks about polygamy, Jacob 2, 27 and 28. I won't read it. If you're following in your scriptures, you can read along at home. But basically it talks about how God is not happy with what the Nephites are doing because the Nephites are engaging in polygamy and he didn't ordain it. And it was making the women sad. Uh, oh, just a last, oh. just, a, I know it, it makes everyone sad, doesn't it? Just a little part from that scripture for, if I will say it, the Lord of hosts raise up seed unto me, I will command my people, command my people basically to, to begin polygamy. Otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. So, <clears throat> We get an interesting thing here because polygamy was such a huge part of the early church. It was a way of life. It was something that they were known for. It was something that created a lot of uh, tumultuous times while they were trying to get statehood especially. So the interesting thing to me in, in researching this is, again, 
from my believer perspective, I can sit here and say, well, okay, it doesn't really matter much because in the modern church, we don't practice polygamy. So uh, why should we be worried about this? Well, my um, interest in it is uh, nav- um, polygamy started popping up when Nauvoo, Kirtland. Uh, Kirtland. It, I mean, we have very, very early stuff in the 18, early 1830s that there was some whispers of it in Kirtland, but Nauvoo is when it was really prominent. And yeah, what, but yeah, by, by whispers, he means that I think it was in Kirtland when, when Emma, Emma booted Fanny Alger out of the, hmm, out of yes. the house for the first time. And then I okay. think there was a sort of a, a number of years that elapsed before that resumed, but we go on Heather. Well, when was the book of Mormon published? This is something that, uh, as my light has left me as an apostate, I have forgotten. 1820 something, right? Well, 1830. I'm always, as somebody who believes that Joseph Smith came up with the Book of Mormon on his own and that it's not um, inspired, and not necessarily even on his own, just that it's not inspired, I'm, I've got to wonder, like, what made him pit, what made him decide or or take an interest in including the subject in what he was coming up with for the Book of Mormon? And then later on in Kirtland and Nauvoo times, was he like kicking himself? Like, why did I put that in there? You know, it causes a problem for what I want to do now. <laughs> um, I wouldn't be surprised if he included it in there just because it was, uh, you know, the greats of the Bible were involved in, in polygamy or some sort of non-traditional marriage. I'm sure that it fit with his understanding of what God would say or want. And then later on, Things changed. Yeah. See, you know, I I wish here that I had a that I had a better timeline than I've got because what what I've been trying to see here while you guys have been talking is is when was the when was the book of Jacob purported to have been translated? Because remember, and, and, and this is perhaps an interesting question to me. Re- remember that the hundred and sixteen pages get lost, mm-hmm. right? And so when translation or, you know, writing it or however you want to view it resumes, he doesn't start with first Nephi. He starts with the book of Mosiah. So Mosiah is the first thing that we have that was, that was written, goes all the way through to the end of end and finishes Moroni. And then he goes back to the beginning and does first Nephi, second Nephi, Jacobinus, uh, Jerem and Omni and, and then words of Mormon. So, I mean, I would just be curious to know, when Fanny Alger moved in, <laughs> because I have always sort of viewed that that polygamy. I don't know whether he came up with that on his own, you know, before then. But I feel like at a minimum, when he had a you know a a servant in the house that he was having some sexual interest in, that that's when he he began to think about it. And you, you know, this scripture in Jacob comes up at the end of the translation process. So I, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess that they had moved out of wherever they were what you know it, it wasn't in Kirtland that this was still going on but um i mean I, I would just be curious to know i know we'll never see the 116 pages but i would sort of be surprised if they had any mention of polygamy it seems like something that occurs to him right at the end when fanny well, Alger moves in and i would also say it's it's also such a random thing to to throw in there because it's it's never mentioned in any other part of the uh of the book of mormon for 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 at least for my recollection, um, so why would that why would that be in there? You know, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the most direct answer to your question is why you know why should anybody in the church care about 
polygamy is that you know section 132 is still on the books and you have you know i mean the modern church of course has got tried to get as far away from it as it can but you've still got the statements by you know, brigham young out there that say only those who engage in polygamy will be called the sons of god and attain the highest and i'm not mm-hmm. sure anybody thinks that anymore but you know i mean it hasn't been refuted so well and i mean polygamy well, even is still if- practiced in the temples yeah, I was just going to say, even if 132 were taken out or somehow uh, de-emphasized completely from any kind of doctrine belief, it's still being practiced in the temple as far as multiple ceilings for husbands and to wives. I mean, they can't they can't get away from that, and and that's right. that's why polygamy is always they they have to completely change the way they do marriages if they want to get rid of any kind of attachment to polygamy or 132 which well, will never then, happen right right well and maybe we can dig into this more when we get down to to eternal marriage but i mean i to me this is one of the less bothersome ones from a faithful point of view given that the church's expl- ex- explanation is that that's something that's situational um all right we need to keep moving on this list anyone any further comments on polygamy nope heather the pre-existence of man Okay, so let me tell you how I approached uh, tonight's podcast. I went to LDS.org and got into their scripture database, basically, because I thought it was really cool that they have basically a searchable Book of Mormon. And um, the preexistence of man was kind of a difficult topic to search the Book of Mormon for, because what kind of terms can you use that are in our modern lexicon that would have actual would have been actual terms in the Book of Mormon. It's kind of hard to come up with one. But but you're, but you're super duper smart. You came up with something, right? Uh, well, what I did was, <laughs> what I did was I looked for pre-mortal life, counsel in heaven, and war in heaven. And the majority of the scripture references, the the LDS.org website actually has topical um, lists of if you want to read about the these subjects, look at these scriptures, and. Um, the only Book of Mormon reference that I came up with was Alma 13.3. And um, all basically all of the stuff that talks about who we are um, being determined in the preexistence and our callings and 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 our many are called but few are chosen and all that kind of stuff, that's all in The Pearl of Great Price. And the only thing in the Book of Mormon um, says... and. And this is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world. It doesn't, it, that right there says from the foundation of the world, meaning when the world was created, right? And that's a very Protestant Christian idea. They don't have this notion of the preexistence. They believe that you're created when you're conceived, I guess. Like you don't exist before you come here. So to say, for the Book of Mormon to uh, have something that says from the foundation of the world, according to the foreknowledge of God, that to me says that at the time that Joseph was coming up with this, he still had a very Protestant view of what happened before people came to this planet. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, and if and if you take the you know Mormon scriptural timeline literally, it, it's sort of a head scratcher that Abraham. Because it's the book of Abraham that this is mostly contained in, right? right? So Abraham knew about this. It was important enough for God to share it with him. Um, but it's not something that that you you really find, you know, much at all about in in the Old or New Testament. Uh, Testament, other than, well, I I'll just stop there. I'm not sure you find much about it at all uh, there. It's not important for the Book of Mormon peoples to know, um, you know, and, and but then it pops up 
you know, in the last couple of hundred years. I mean, I, I mean, I guess you can throw that off too well. You know, God is mysterious, and there's some reason it's important for people now to know that. But it just sort of makes you wonder, well, why? You know, why tell somebody early on, and then nobody knows about it for the longest time, and now we do again. Exactly. And uh, the pre-mortality, a glorious reality, ensign in 1985, Neil uh, Maxwell states, Meanwhile, the adversary relentlessly uses the absence or disbelief of this doctrine, meaning the pre-existence, to shrink man's perspective. One-dimensional man with only a one-dimensional view of the world will surely focus upon the cares of the world, yielding to things of the moment. Mm. So, so without our, without believing in this pre-existence, apparently, uh, we we are living a very shallow, one-sided life. And yet, God's most chosen people through the Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon times, it wasn't important. Apparently, it was okay for them to have that shallow understanding of the of the world. Right. Apparently. Uh, he goes on to say, Satan knows well the implication of our knowing about a pre-mortal and post-mortal life. If he can get us to think that there is nothing more before or after, then he can more easily convince us to sin. That is so not true. That is so <laughs> not true. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to make, make my little atheist defense here. I, uh, that, that's something that that I think that you hear from faithful folks and from the authorities all the time, that if there's no before, that if there's no after, that there's no God, then what incentive do you have to do anything other than be a hedonist, uh, other than to just gratify and satisfy all of your carnal desires? Um, It's just not true. I mean, I look around at all the atheists that I know, and I don't see any of them doing that. And, And in fact, I think that there's a lot of incentive for people to begin to say, well, you know, if this is the only shot I get, if I've been given this, you know, miracle of sentience that I get for some small amount mm-hmm. of time, I want to get it right. I want to, mm-hmm. you know, do the most good that I can. I want to be the best that I can, not because I fear punishment or, you know, desire reward, but because those things are goods in and of themselves. So sorry, but I'd had to completely disagree with uh, with Elder Maxwell on that comment. Well, I think the response would be you don't I, you don't see that they're being hedonistic because you're being hedonistic too. I mean, you drink beer, right? There you go. I'm going to I'm going to plead the fifth on that. I mean, <laughs> people I know listen to this podcast. Some of whom have not seen me drink beer. <laughs> listen, I've been around all you folks long enough to to know that's the only reason you all left the church was because you obviously wanted to sin mm-hmm. or you were offended mm-hmm. or you were weak or Exactly. Or <laughs> Well, let, well let, let me let me make this comment, Brant. I didn't leave because I wanted to sin. But once I got out and find out, found out how much fun it is, had I known, I think I would have left for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, it's okay that you guys are, that we're hedonistic or sin a lot because there's virtually no hell in Mormonism, right, Matt? That is such a, ni- that is such a nice he- segue because the, the very worst thing that is going to happen uh, to any of us is that we're going to go to the celestial kingdom. So let's talk a little bit about the... Um, conception of the afterlife, um, both in the modern church and in the Book of Mormon. So people are pretty familiar with in the modern modern church. We believe that someone dies, they go to the spirit world before the resurrection. They're either in prison where they're tormented if they were bad, or it's paradise uh, because they were good. And then comes the judgment, the resurrection. People are separated into the celestial kingdom where everybody on this 
podcast, except maybe Brand is going, um, <laughs> the terrestrial kingdom and the celestial kingdom. And the last of which is the only one, you know, where if you're a man, you can have many wives. And if you're a woman, you can have offspring forever and ever, and you have eternal increase and you progress. And so there, there really is no conception of hell in modern Mormonism, certainly not in the sense that any Catholic or Protestant would conceive of hell. Mm -hmm. you, you get the answer of, okay, well, when they're, you know, when they're talking about hell, really they're talking about, you know, this, this, uh, spirit prison where you're going to be harrowed up to this awful remembrance of all of your sins and you're going to feel bad about what you did. But after, you know, basically a short period of time, um, that's going to be over and you're going to be placed into a, a kingdom, you know, all except for a very few people are going to be placed into a kingdom that's, that's going to represent, um, a reward for them. So, I mean, I, anybody disagree with that characterization of essentially what doctrine is now? Uh, I would only add that we've been told that if we would, if we knew what the lowest kingdom was like, we'd kill ourselves to get there. Right. Yeah. That's attributed to Joseph Smith, I believe. So the book of Mormon, on the other hand, has a very traditional Christian conception of heaven and hell. 139 mentions of heaven, um, and you're right, Heather, Heather the search engine on LDS.org is great, but 139 mentions of, of heaven, 55 mentions of hell, and a, a very specific, and this is Alma 42, we don't have time to go through all of it, but I'd invite people to read Alma 42. Alma 42 is a very specific exposition on why there has to be and a, an eternal reward that is in contrast or juxtaposed to an eternal punishment. I'll, I'll just read one verse of that. And we did a whole, we did a whole podcast on DNC 19 that I'd also refer people to, but it says now repentance could not come unto men except there were a punishment, which is also, which also was eternal as the life of the soul should be affixed opposite to the plan of happiness, which was as eternal also as the life of the soul. So you have a very, I think, very cogent argument. If there's going to be an eternal reward, there has to be the possibility of an eternal punishment. And, and, and that's essentially what most Christians think. You burn in hell forever or you go to heaven and you, you know, sit around adoring and worshiping God. Um, so I'll move to DNC 19 briefly because it's worth pointing out that, it, that at some point, um, Joseph realizes that this is a problem, and uh, essentially in that, uh, well, I'll, I'll read some verses here, but essentially he has God at that point saying, remember when I said all that stuff about eternal punishment and eternal torment? Just kidding. When I said eternal, I simply meant torment as long as I wanted it to be, not really forever. So I'm going to read from DNC 19, starting in verse 6, a couple verses here. Nevertheless, it is not written, there shall be no end to this torment, but it is written, endless torment. Again, it is, it is written, eternal damnation, wherefore it is more expressed than other scriptures, that it might work upon the hearts of the children of men altogether for my name's glory. Wherefore, I will explain unto you this mystery, for it is meet unto you to know, even as mine apostles. I speak unto you that are chosen in this thing, even as one, that you may enter into my rest. For behold, the mystery of godliness, how great it is, for behold, I am endless, and the punishment which is given from my hand is endless punishment, for endless is my name." Wherefore, eternal punishment is God's punishment. Eternal punishment, endless, sorry, endless punishment is God's punishment. So what he's saying there is all that stuff I, you know, had 
you know, written from Alma 42. When I said endless, I was that endless is my name. Now I did, I defy anybody to go back and try to insert that understanding into Alma 42 and have it make any sense. It, it, it doesn't, but I, to me, it's as clear an example and there are others, but it's as clear an example as there is, as exists as, of Joseph saying, you know, my, my theology has evolved. I don't have a concept of heaven and hell. And yet, you know, a traditional one, and yet the Book of Mormon's full of that. So I've got to go back and fix that somehow. Um, I mean, it's to me, it's about as weak a way to, to do it as it could have been done. But I mean, there he did it. I mean, it, you know, to me, it's a little bit of evidence of a guilty mind on that issue. Um, so there you have there you have heaven and hell in the Book of Mormon. All right, we we ready to move on to nature of God, Amy? Yes, I was just cracking open my scriptures, and they literally cracked open. I haven't read this section apparently. Um, so for my portion of this list, uh, I was asked to research the true nature of God um, as far as the Book of Mormon is concerned. The Book of Mormon, interestingly enough, and it wasn't until I left the church that I had any idea that there was a Trinitarian view that was expressed in the Book of Mormon. Um, I didn't even really understand what Trinitarian or the Trinity really was because I was raised in the church and I was always taught that they were all separate. So surprising to find out that in the Book of Mormon, there is really no, there is no teaching um, that corresponds with modern day Mormon doctrine, which is that they are separate. In fact, everything that is in the Book of Mormon teaches a traditional Trinitarian view. Um, in Mosiah 15, 1 through 3, and I'm going to quickly read through it. I would that you should understand that God himself shall come down among the children and shall redeem his people. And because he dwelleth in the flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. Having been subjected to the flesh of the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son. The Father was, because the Father was conceived by the power of God and the Son because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and the Son, and they are one God, yea, the eternal Father of heaven and earth. So, honestly, just as confusing as any other Trinitarian view I've ever heard. Um, for, for, for anybody who's listening who might have been under the Mormon umbrella their whole life and not really understand what the Trinity is, Amy, do you want to say what that is, or does somebody else want to jump in with that? Um, well, my basic understanding of the Trinity is that um, God is the eternal spirit, the eternal everything. He is the one and only that Jesus is the physical incarnation of God and that the Holy Spirit, I don't even know how the Holy Spirit's supposed to fit into a Trinitarian view. He's the feeling that you get. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, my, my understanding is that it's sort of that they're not distinct beings, but that they are a single being who manifests themselves in who manifests itself or himself in three distinct forms. Now, how exactly that works, I, I'm not sure anybody knows. I, th I think that most churches just say, well, that's a, that's a holy mystery. But, but somehow they're all, all the same. So, but I cut you off. Go on. No, kind of like shape of an ice cube or <laughs> shape of the water vapor or something like that. I don't know. That's a Super Friends reference. I love it. Yeah. Can I, uh, uh, can I break in here for a second? Um, sure. I listen to a lot of evangelical talk radio and this is a big, well, Mormons are a big issue for evangelicals, but, um, this, this notion of Trinity and, uh, three separate beings and the Mormon conception of God is a big deal to them. Uh, it's a big deal to Christians that God himself 
um, hum, not humbled, but he, it's a big deal to them that he came down in human form to, to save his creations. That's a huge deal. It's a, it's a very meaningful thing to them that their God stooped to the human level to save them and not only stooped to the human level, but then went through all the things that Jesus went through. And then, um, the other, the other, uh, aspect of that is that it's offensive for lack of a better term to Christians, this notion that the savior is a created being rather than uh, an eternal being with godly powers, if that makes any sense. And there is, at least it's been my experience that there's not a lot of talk of the Holy Ghost in the, at least the Christian circles that I've been involving they myself in listening to, it, to. Don't they refer to the Holy Ghost more as the Holy Spirit? Well, yeah. Yeah. But I think that, um, from my limited understanding that, yeah, it is just kind of like the feeling you get type of a thing. And I could be totally wrong about that. Right. You know, one of the, one of the first, it might even be the first one. One of the first couple of Mr. Deity episodes has a, has a great take on this where, you know, deity is, is essentially interviewing Jesus and trying to convince him why he ought to go do this. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and Jesus says to him, well, why, why don't you just do this yourself? And, and, you know, deity sort of like, well, I, I mean, I mean, I could, I would, but you know, I just, I have a lot of other things to do, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, it, but there is something to what you're saying that the, I think it is a powerful idea to Christians that, um, that God himself did that. Now, you know, Mormons, I think are very touched by the idea that, you know, God, you know, sends his, sends his only son and, right. you know, sacrifices his son. But I think there's not a whole lot of thought of, well, isn't it a more powerful idea that he, rather than that he sends somebody that he, that he actually does it himself. I mean, I, not that I buy any religion, but mm-hmm. anyway, all right. So yeah, um, there's no, there's no, right. Amy, there's no direct reference in the book of Mormon. No, to there them is being no separate. direct reference. Um, there's only direct. Re- well, I'm sorry. There is no direct re- reference to what? To the, well, like the, I would think that the first, um, conception of the of them being separate beings would be the first vision right and that obviously changed over time that that claim or right. that so story when we were thinking of the scriptures those those references the modern day mo- uh, mo- mormon doctrine comes from the doctrine and covenants uh mm-hmm. specifically where it talks about in a dnc 130 22 and 23 but not in the Book of Mormon is very, very Trinitarian. Specifically, is there more than one God? No. Um, I am the Father and the Son. I have never showed myself unto man whom I have created for man has never believed in me as thou hast. That's an ether. So, um, and in, even in um, Talmage's Jesus the Christ, it specifically says, and this was a little interesting to read, the scripture specifies, this is chapter four, the anti-mortal godship of Christ. The scriptures specify three personages in the Godhead, God the Eternal Father, the Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost, and then he states, these constitute the Holy Trinity. So even as far back as 1951, I'm not quite sure that it was fully understood as what Mormons really thought of the nature of God. Yes, he was different and he was, and there were different people and they had um, similar roles and they were, um, you know, perfect unity and harmony and purpose, but they, they still kind of seem to 
to follow that Trinitarian view. If I could jump in for a second, I think that we often, or at least I used to be guilty of, of importing that, you know, sort of the, the primacy and the importance of the first vision and what was learned in the first vision um, all the way back to the time that it happened. I mean, I, growing up in the church and, you know, when I taught missionary discussions, or at least, you know, I learned about them in the MTC, you know, that's very, one of the very first things that's out there is that we know what the nature of God is. This whole dispensation was opened by the ending of this ignorance. People completely misconceived the nature of God. And now all of a sudden, you know, that ignorance has been, has been taken away. But you go back to the time of the Book of Mormon, and, and you have to remember that the Book of Mormon was published, and, you know, the the missionaries and the apostles were out all over the world preaching the Book of Mormon, and they had never heard the first vision story. Mm-hmm. Joseph had not told anybody about that. It all came right out of the Book of Mormon. That's what they were traveling around preaching and talking about, and... and um if I remember, at least if I remember some of the stories correctly, it wasn't so much uh, Joseph had this amazing vision. It was we we have a, a Book of Mormon, we have this new record, and there's a restoration. I don't even think Joseph was emphasized that much as a prophet with some of the early missionaries. Right. Yeah. And 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 I mean, it, it seems to be the case that he told basically no one uh, about the the sort of fundamental experience. I mean, so even when you go back and compare, you know, that the earliest version he seems one being and that it, you know, it seems to to change. It wasn't like he was telling the whole church about this. I mean, it isn't until 1838 when, you know, when he's in a lot of hot water over what's happened in Kirtland and you're having, you know, they're in the middle of a mass apostasy that he comes out with, okay, let me tell you what happened. And there were two beings. And, and so my only point there is that the Trinitarian view that you have in the Book of Mormon, at least in the you know the first eight years and the beginning of the church, that would not have at all been inconsistent with anything that that Joseph was teaching. And so it's not surprising to me that it you know, that it may have taken many 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 decades um, before it it fully sunk in that hey this is something really distinct and this is going to become one of our primary selling points. I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. All right. Brand, you want to yeah, do like baptisms on. for the dead? You, 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 it right. feels like you've kind of submitted back there. <laughs> don't tap. Don't tap. Jesus never don't tap out. <laughs> I won't. I won't. Tap. All right. All right. So baptism for the dead. Uh, I'm going to spit some facts and some knowledge out on you people. Oh, bring, bring it. it. And I do mean you people. All right. Uh, <laughs> this is this is from, uh, I, I cannot believe I'm actually reading this. This is from Gerald and Sandra Tanner's Mormonism, Shadow or Reality. Brand, oh, I have that book. Brand, I I fear for your soul. Nope, nope. This is this is facts and knowledge, and I think this will be okay. Even though the Book of Mormon is supposed to contain the fullness of the gospel, it never mentions the doctrine of baptism for the dead, not even once. And this is what I found really interesting: the word baptism appears twenty-five times in the Book of Mormon. The word baptize appears twenty-eight times. The word baptized appears eighty-five times. And the word baptizing appears six times, but the doctrine of baptism for the dead isn't even mentioned once. Uh, I, I will admit, I, I did find this one a little bit interesting, especially considering um, when Joseph reintroduced the concept of baptism for the dead, this was a huge, huge event among the saints. I mean, we had we, we talked about it in our um, uh, Baptisms of the, for the Dead uh, podcast, but you had... You had men being baptized for women, women being baptized for men. No one was keeping records. As soon as Joseph announced it, people were out in the river baptizing people. Uh, I just find it very interesting, though, that that 
concept was not based in the Book of Mormon at all. There's one verse in the New Testament, and you have the Doctrine and Covenants, which has a ton of information on it, but there's nothing in the Book of Mormon. Now, for the non-believing crowd, you could mark that as, there you go, there's uh, there's one for the home team there. Um, that's not in the Book of Mormon, and we have it, and it's an integral part of, of what we do. It's a big part of what we do. But for me, I, I just sit there and say, I, I really like how Amy described it. Basically, that we kind of view the whole restoration canon as one big book, and we don't separate out the Book of Mormon compared to everything else. Well, I think the problem, though, with that, Brant, is that when we look at these, these uh, our list, for instance, Baptism for the Dead, the idea is that it was restored. Therefore, it had to, where did it come from? There, There's no record of it. There's the one passage about the, the baptizing for the dead. What, what is it in John or Matthew? Um, basically states we don't do this. And yet this is supposed to be a restored practice of the one true church. That's why it's a problem. And, and, and I'll come back to you on this. And I know this is going to be an apologetic answer that's going to make all of you slap your foreheads. But... You could also kind of take that back to the whole concept of if Joseph was a prophet, if this was a restoration, if this is what he said he was doing, which was restoring things, doesn't that give him a little bit of credence to be able to restore things that might not be captured in our – even in our our, um, our older canon? But restoring it from, from where? Restore implies that it was done before. Where was it done before? I think a believer would say King Solomon's temple – but because we but have no idea. On, oh, but they were well, sacrificing animals there. Well, yeah, well, I know. But I mean, in all honesty, Amy, you and I could get in a pissing match where you bring up something and then I bring up something and you bring up something and then I bring up Nibley and then everyone gets pissed off because I decided to, to go down that road. But <laughs> at the end of the day, though, there there are people out there who have said, okay, no, there we found we have found evidence of this being done in the past, not as extravagantly and not as predominantly as as the LDS church does it, because that is a very much, well, I wouldn't say a defining thing, but that is a very strong thing of what we do. Um, and it's not as, as commonplace as say baptizing, which whether immersion or, or um, by sprinkling baptism is, is understood by a lot of people and baptism for the dead is a very Mormon term. Uh, at the same time though, there, and I'm not going to claim to be an expert. I'm just reading what experts have written. There are people out there that said we've found this evidence elsewhere that that people did practice this before. Um, I, I've I've got the I've got the apologetic answer for this. Well, can I ask before you do that? Go ahead. Didn't Paul speak out against baptizing the dead? Yes, that's what I thought. Anyway, go ahead, uh, Matt. And and, so, and Brant, I don't want to I don't want to ever get into a pissing contest with you. Just saying. <laughs> Thanks. Here's what I used to say when I was had my apologist hat on. And this applies not just to baptisms for the dead, but this applies to any proxy work that we want to that we want to talk about. When you really focus on how many people are going to be able to get their proxy work done prior to the millennium, it's almost none. I mean, when you when you look at how many people are in the world right now, the billions of people that are alive now, the billions of people who have come before that there's not going to be any record of you begin to look at the whole doing proxy work and say, well, this is the most inefficient thing I've, I've ever seen. It's going to miss 99.9% of, of humanity. And so if that's the case, 
there, there are two things that I used to always say. The first one is, is that it shows that the, that the temple work is not actually primarily for the, the people that are having it done. It's for the members. But I think that you can also make the argument of, so when are all those people going to have their work done? The answer is they're going to have the work done in the millennium. So if this is the last dispensation, then it makes sense that those things would be established preparatory for the millennium to come so that you have temples all over the place. You have knowledge about how to do it. You have knowledge about how to collect the records so that when the millennium will arrives and supposedly you would have the ability somehow to go back and, and find all of those things, essentially you've put the, the infrastructure in place to have those things done. So it, it wouldn't necessarily make sense that you would have that in the book of Mormon times because they're not in the last dispensation. They wouldn't have had, uh, you know, there wouldn't have been that many people they could have done in the first place. You know, same thing with, you know, new and old Testament times. This is something that, that you would only have because the millennium's right around the corner. That, did that convince everyone? So in other words, the temple work that is being done these days is a scrimmage match for the millennium. Yes. You like that, Brent? You're going to break that out on somebody at some point, aren't you? I'm, I'm going to put that in the back of my mind. File it away. And I'll make sure that I tell people. And you know, an apostate told me this too. <laughs> All right. So, Amy, you had uh, eternal marriage. Yes. And uh, marriage, or any derivative of that word, married, marry, um, is only mentioned four times in the Book of Mormon. Um, let's see. One time is in 4th Nephi, and three times is in 3rd Nephi. And there's nothing specific to any kind of particular marriage. It is mentioning that they were married or they were given in marriage. Um, let's see. And whoso shall marry her um, that is divorced has committed adultery. Adultery. So there's a, a little bit of a traditional Christian view in there. Um, an apologist response may be, as far as, uh, the idea of eternal marriage um, would come from Helaman 10.7, and that is, Behold, I give unto you a power that whosoever ye shall seal um, on earth shall be sealed in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, and thus uh, shall ye have the power amongst the people. So there's an association, a word association, based on what we know now, to modern-day Mormon practice, that that could be referring to it. Um, a couple other ideas that um, a believer or an apologet apologist may look to is the extensive temple work and temple, and just the temple being so prominent in the Nephi society that there had to have been something like that going on, or they wouldn't have been constantly talking about it. Um Interestingly enough, Joseph Smith, prior to DNC 132, talks about the idea of marriage has to have an end. And he is said to have held up a ring and challenged anyone to find the beginning of the end. Um, and that which and that that has a beginning must have an end, basically putting aside the idea that there could be an eternal marriage. Uh, Brigham Young famously said, I do not know that I have a wife or child in the resurrection. I have never had any thoughts or reflections upon this and have cared or cared the first thing about it. 
So uh, the idea of eternal marriage and the, the importance of it, not just not being in the Book of Mormon, but in the early days of the church, it was not that big of a deal. In fact, it was kind of left to the side uh, as not being important for eternal salvation, even though we've got 132, um, just in everyday living, it was just not something that was that big of a deal. Yeah, and I mean, to me, that sort of makes sense, sort of the evolution of it of it having less importance and then returning to prominence, because, you know, the early church and, you know, the whether you're talking about the Nauvoo church or the or the Utah church are essentially, you know, shaking up what the what the norms of society are in terms of marriage relationships. They're establishing polygamy and they're, you know, they're doing ceilings. I you know, Brant was talking about doing baptisms for all kinds of people, but ceilings not just to to wives, but you know, ceilings to parents, uh, doing these adoption ceilings where men would be, you know, sealed to each other. And, and so there that's a period of time where they're really shaking up the norms. They reestablish sort of a new norm that's that's polygamy, which I think just as you're saying there, Brigham and others don't seem to really have some strong concept of well, we're you know, this is an eternal family and isn't it wonderful our nuclear little family is going to be together? But it's more of this idea that uh, you know all of humanity is sort of getting bound together, or at least some of us are. And then you know when polygamy goes away, you have sort of this you know thirty forty year period where, you know, the last of those, you know, relationships end as people pass away. And then my argument is you, you get back to the kind of the 1940s, 1950s, and the social more again is, you know, Mormons are trying really hard to get back into the mainstream where American is apple pie. You know, we have these tight little nuclear families and guess what? You can be with them forever. That's, that's what this whole ceiling thing's all about. That's what eternal marriage is. You get to have your spouse, you get to have your children. And, and that's, I think, been a message that's just gotten stronger and stronger all the way up until now when the people, you know, the people who are in charge of the church now, and you see it manifested in so many different ways, um, you know, are, are mapping the more, especially the social mores of the 1950s onto, you know, the, the, the theology and practice of the church so that that's something that's really elevated at this point. But, but I think it's a point well taken that, you know, it, the Book of Mormon era there, or the era that it was published, um, you know, when they first came up with these things, it was for a, a different reason, or at least there was a different emphasis, if that makes sense. Right. One more thing that I wanted to, to mention as far as, you know, when we look at what traditional Christianity and Mormonism and how they differ, um, and that brings up when these uh, temple work in general um, and the idea of doing the genealogy work, um, that is also a notion that was basically poo-pooed in the Bible, and that is something that is, you know, probably in the top five as far as if you're a good Mormon, you're doing your genealogy work, which means you're doing your temple work. But that is something that as far as traditional Christianity goes, um, you are basically asked not to do it which I think is strange anyway. Like, I don't even think, why Why would a God care, period? But just another interesting aside to mention. Well, not only that, but the Christian world does not have the emphasis on marriage that Mormonism does. In fact, there's a lot of talk of the gift of singleness and the people who are given the gift of singleness. Um, mm -hmm. what, a great, what a great thing it is that they can 
they can be free of the, the restrictions of marriage so that they can focus on spreading the gospel, kind of like was talked about in the New Testament by like Paul. Wow. So, yeah, that is nothing you'll never hear no. at conference the gift of singleness. And how sad <laughs> because, you know, it would maybe make people who don't find somebody to marry less self conscious about it. Or who just right. choose not yeah. to marry. Yep. Well, and there are plenty of people out here you know, out there for whom the idea that you're going to be married beyond this life is not attractive. (laughs) I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, have the reaction of really you're married forever. Oh, geez. You know, it's just not appealing to everyone. Yeah. None, none none of us here. I'm not, not me, but I just want to add one small thing. I love my wife. So I just figured I'd throw that in there. I'd be married to my husband for eternity. If it was true, if it, if that really existed. I That's love so my nice. spousal equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> Your spousal equivalent. Yeah. What are, what are we talking about? He's my fiance. We've been in, we're engaged, but we have not yet married. Oh, okay. I, I'm sorry. I, my mind's so far down in the gutter. I thought we were talking about something mechanical. Oh, I have like 15 of those. I am. <laughs> Moving on. I am Moving a polygamist. <laughs> <laughs> you're a you're a polygamist. <laughs> we we made it all we all made it almost an hour and forty some odd minutes in before there was a reference to masturbation, so good for all of us, I guess. Mm. Brad's getting uncomfortable. Sorry, I, Brad. I really do I, I love my wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh well let's just get on to some endowments and garments. Heather, take it away. Okay, so uh, when I did my searching for this topic, there's no mention of any endowment. There's, I don't know, entering into covenant type language a little, but there's absolutely no reference to endowments whatsoever in the Book of Mormon. In my search for garment, there's several references to garment, but the majority of them are similar to Alma 521, in which it talks about that his garments, garments must be purified until they are cleansed from all stain through the blood of him whom it, it it has been spoken of by our fathers and who should come to redeem his people from their sins. So it's obvious that those types of references are not referring to anything that goes on in the temple. It's referring to baptism and atonement, not to, not to anything that goes on in the temple. There were a couple of references to people removing their garments to be tread underfoot if they broke covenants or if they were proven wrong, kind of. Uh, But again, it seemed to me that the references were about clothing rather than, you know, what we view as the garment. And here's just something kind of snarky that I wanted to throw in here. Uh, in In Alma, where Moroni rents the garment and writes upon it and waves it in the air. If that were real, as Mormons view them now, real garments, he would be violating the rules in the church handbook of instructions about waving your garments in public. <laughs> the way Mormons view that is Moroni using a cloak, right? We don't, they don't view him as using his actual like sacred garments from his endowment. Right. And I'd also like to point out that when Moroni came to visit Joseph, you know, in his vision in his bedroom, Joseph Smith says very clearly that he could see his bosom and so either Moroni wasn't endowed or he just decided not to wear his garments that day. So that's the information I have on garments and the endowment. Uh, I would ahead, say uh, that uh, our, our modern garments now are not the same. I mean, if 
if if the garments that that we consider to be garments now are the same garments that are being discussed previously in in like you know in a sacred nature, I'll put it that way, they're not going to be the same cut and style as what we have now. And who's to say what what Moroni wasn't wearing was was different than what other people wear? I highly recommend um, David Berger's book Mysteries of Godliness because he does a great job of discussing. Uh, a lot of the history behind things like the garments and the temple, and he does it in a very well researched and uh, pretty pretty respectable way. I was taught, always taught, that the garments that were worn in biblical times and Book of Mormon times were worn on the exterior, almost like how Muslims Muslim women wear hijab or burqas to signify themselves as Muslim. That those who wore what is now considered a Mormon garment, that version of it was worn on the outside to signify that they were of a specific covenant. I've heard that Eliza R. Snow designed a garment that had like these big collars that stuck up out of your clothes and that it was like a symbol of we are separate. We've done a separate set of ordinances from everybody else around us. I've also heard they're connected to polygamy in some way, but I haven't really looked into that. So here's what I was going to look up for Brant or what I wanted to read to Brant. He had on a loose robe of most exquisite whiteness. It was the whiteness beyond anything earthly that I had ever seen, nor do I believe that any earthly thing could be made to appear so exceedingly white and brilliant. His hands were naked and his arms a little above the wrist. So also were his feet naked as were his legs a little above the ankles. His head and neck were also bare. I I discovered that he had no other clothing on but this robe. So as it was open so that I could see into his bosom. So based on your theory, that means that when Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith, he was wearing only his garments, which means that that's what you have to look forward to in eternity is walking around in your garments. No, no, that's not what I was saying. I was saying he was, he was, Joseph was using the word garment to, to, as a word of clothing. That, that's my opinion. No, I know that. I was just being snarky in that, like, if, if Moroni's garments looked different than the garments that are, that are used now, and that was the only, and Joseph said that he only had on the one thing, then that must be the garments. I was just being snarky. So, um, can I, can I jump in here for a minute or were you not done? Well, I have one thing that I wanted to talk about about temples. Okay. Um, while I was doing, Obviously, we just talked about temple things, right? We talked about uh, redemption of the dead. We talked about eternal marriage and the endowment and the garment. Um, while I was looking for these references to garments and the endowment, I also found myself looking for references to the temple in the Book of Mormon. It made me think of the way, one, that the modern church conceives of the temple and what is done in the temple. Two, the Old Testament version of the temple and the way Mormons view that. So there's kind of a conflict there. Um, the way the, and even in the chapter headings for some of these things that I was looking up, it, the chapter heading specifically says like they were receiving the keys to do temple ordinances. So obviously the, the way that Mormons are supposed to be viewing these scriptures based on the chapter headings and probably what's taught in Sunday school and stuff is that the things that were going on in the temple there are exactly like the things that go on in the temple now. Um, there's a, a scripture in Alma, it's 1613 that talk about how Alma and Amulek went forth preaching repentance and to their, unto their temple and to their sanctuaries and also their synagogues, which were built after the manner of Jews. 
And given scriptures like that, there's plenty of, of scriptures referring to temples and, and that kind of thing. And given the fact that, you know, Lehi came from Jerusalem and there's this idea embedded in temple ordinances that they came from the Sol- Solomon's temple through the Masons and all that kind of stuff. Mormons have this idea that what goes on in the temple now is what has always gone on in the temple, but that's conflicting against what really did go on in the temple in the Old Testament. I mean, I don't think, I think it's pretty evident by Alma 1613 that Joseph Smith hadn't really thought that through because if, if it's in the manner of the Jews, then that means it's in the manner of the Old Testament, which were sacrificing animals, burning incense, the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant, which is completely not in line with what, 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 what Mormons think go on in the temple. So there's a yeah. definite problem there and it's evident yeah, and, in mo- more modern Mormon thought as well as the book of Mormon. Yeah. And, and I, I've been persuaded by the things that I've heard and read on, on masonry that, you know, the Joseph's belief that those things would have gone back to the, to Solomon's temple. That was not an uncommon belief in his day. I mean, no. There aren't any masons that believe that now, but that was, that was something that in that time period, um, wouldn't have been that unusual. Well, if I remember from the um, series that Mormon Expression did on on masonry, there were people who did believe that, believe that, but then there were also like other masons, probably the larger body of masonry, who kind of rolled their eyes at that and thought, "Oh, come on." Oh, was that I, right? Even in Joseph's time, I, well, think, I, may be I think that's the case. But there, I I think there were people who did believe that it was an ancient order going back to Solomon's Temple, literally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let, if I may, let jump in a minute on the on the issue of the the endowment and garments. That I don't. Although I, I think we've had an interesting discussion about those things, I don't see the the existence of that in the modern church and the absence of it in the Book of Mormon is is really undermining the Book of Mormon the way that some of these other things do for, for the following reasons. The, the first one is is that you know if if you believe you know in a literal that the Book of Mormon has literal events, and if you you know imagine that they may have had something going on in their temples, they don't. Book of Mormon doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what happens in the, in the temples. I, I think that it would be safe to assume that they would not put that out in a book that was gonna that you know that God knew was gonna be out there for public consumption. I think it would be safe to assume that those things would be you know if if not you know secret. I think of them as being secret and in it sacred or secret they they wouldn't be out there. So I, I wouldn't necessarily expect to see them in in you know the Book of Mormon. Also when you when you look at what the endowment really is, I mean it's a it's a couple of things. It, it's you know making covenants which there are examples of um, in the Book of Mormon of, you know, large groups of people being put under covenant um, to do different things. It's it's learning about, you know, different signs and tokens that are going to allow people to, you know, return to God. And again, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't believe any of this happened, but, but if you did believe that, you wouldn't expect those things to be contained in the scriptures. And, and then the last thing that I will say is that, you know, as much as people make out of, you know, how odd is it that, you know, Mormons wear garments now, and maybe that does make them, you know, a, a little bit funny in modern society. I mean, the wearing of, of symbolic clothing is has a long, long history and many, mm-hmm. many examples of it in all kinds of faiths all around the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think Amy tossed out um, two modern examples of it, you know, in Islam, but I remember... Um, remember being in Fiddler on the Roof in high school, and I, in my character, wore a, a I think it's called a zitzis, yeah. which is essentially a prayer shawl that does go under your clothes, 
Um, and, the and then there's little out. strings, strings mm-hmm. that come out or along your waist and you, you know, you tie them in knots and, you know, again, that's a, that's a kind of, you know, sort of holy or, you know, magic underwear, whatever you want to call it. I, I think that people have gotten so far removed from that in the modern world that that seems odd, but that, that part of it's never seemed all that weird to me. Um, maybe it's just cause I, you know, grew up in Mormonism, but that's, that's something that has a long history in religious traditions. I agree with you. And I, and I, I could see what you've just said about the work in the temple being withheld, not for mass consumption as being a, an acceptable answer for a believer. I kind of have a, I don't know, chalk this up to being a bitter apostate, but I kind of have the attitude that the book of Mormon needs to either needs to go one way or the other, and it goes neither way. And let me give you the one way or the others. Um, it either needs to comply with uh, Old Testament practices and Old Testament conceptions of religion and that kind of thing, or it needs to be like the modern church. And um, it's neither. That's, so that's my that's my response to why it's a problem. Anyway. So Heather, do you want to do you want to talk about uh, three degrees of glory? Okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, I have a little bit of a problem talking about the three degrees of glory. Um, the first one is I looked up celestial, eternity, exaltation, all these types of terms. There's no, I got, I got absolutely no hits for the Book of Mormon. Um, so I tried to go back and do what I did for, um, pre-existence and look up kind of the topical guide type stuff on the church website. And the page would not, it would repeatedly not load. So you can take that as that's the um, church's conspiracy to try to back away from the degrees of glory. I'm totally joking. Um, or as just a unfortunate coincidence, but um, from this, from the searches I did, there were absolutely no references to different segments of heaven. And I think that we, as we've talked about with the conception of God and the limited punishment and all of that, it's pretty clear that in the book of Mormon, it, they had a Protestant view of heaven. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That does sort of fold somewhat into our, our earlier conversation about um, post-life, which, which maybe that's the, the perfect segue to the, um, let me throw in cl- one. Let me throw in one thing, though. Um, yeah. In my preparations, I did run across um, ex Mormon scholars testify, and that's a website that I've always known has been there, but I haven't really gone and looked at. Um, one of the people there made reference to Emanuel Swedenborg's treatise on heaven and hell, where it, apparently he believes, and maybe a lot of people believe that that's where um, Joseph Smith got a lot of his ideas for what we now see as modern Mormon theology and that those types of things, the degrees of glory and uh, the separate beings of God and all, all of those things are in that book. And, um, and he came upon it after the book of Mormon and that's why they're not in there. So, and I ordered it from Amazon and I'm waiting for it to arrive and I am eager to read it. Yeah. And, and I'll just throw out there too, that, I mean, you never know what to make of, of silence on any particular issue mm-hmm. in the church. Although, you know, I think sometimes we think as they talk about things less, it means they're stressing it less or they believe it less. Although, what, what was it? The, the 14 fundamentals popped up recently when people thought it was dead. But I'm not conscious that there's a whole lot of talk about the three degrees of glory, that that's something that's mentioned other than, you know, here's what was said about it. Done, I, I just, Brant, you can tell me if, you, if you're having a different experience in, in your worship services, but I just don't think this is something that people, you know, or church authorities spend a whole lot of time talking about anymore or claim to know much about. Well, they, they really 
don't. Um, <clears throat> at least it's it's brought up in the fact of okay, if we're if we're going to be talking about if we're going to be talking about heaven, heaven is always equated to the celestial kingdom. It's only if we're specifically going to talk about the three degrees of glory that we're going to be talking about it even more. And I think one of the problems with it is not so much the um, the fact that we don't know much about it, but then there's also three degrees within the celestial glory, and you have, uh, you know, I remember being a young guy and, and hearing someone say that, um, you know, kind of beating myself up, saying I'll never make it to that top tier, and someone said, well, I heard a general authority say that that most of the Mormons are going to make it to that top tier. And then I'd also hear people like uh, Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith say things like, yeah, it's going to be a very small number that hit that top point. So th- there's just not a lot of good information out there on it. Well, my... If only there were prophets or something who could <laughs> inquire. <laughs> this, is one of, this is one of the things that kind of get... that has been getting under my skin lately, that... Um, and you see it everywhere in public right now because of Mitt Romney. Um, kind of the Mormons don't believe that people get their own planet. You know what I mean? That type of stuff. And if every Mormon I've ever met believes as man once was, or as man is now, God once was, and as man, God is now, man can become. Every Mormon believes that. Every Mormon yeah, believes. And, 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 what, and what do you inherit? If you get exaltation, what do you inherit? All, all the Father has. Exactly. Right. You'll become a god and you will have polygamous wives and you will have eternal increase. All Mormons believe these things, but it seems like as Mormons, as the Mormon church itself struggles to be accepted by mainstream Christianity, they're de-emphasizing all these things and kind of trying to hush people up about them. And it's, I don't know, it's aggravating. So that's why um, when th- the degrees of glory topic on the LDS.org website won't load, I'm immediately like, see, this is another example. But that's just my own confirmation bias, I think. Yeah, see, and, and, and I don't think that they need, I don't think they need to hide from that kind of thing. I mean, I, I think that they sort of, well, I think there are a couple of mis- misconceptions that Mormons have. One is that people care more about what they think or believe than they actually mm-hmm. do. I mean, granted that with, you know, Romney's candidacy that there's been an increase in, in, in curiosity, but I think as a general principle, people already think that Mormons are a little bit strange. And, and, and whether they believe that Mormons think that they're, you know, are, are degrees of glory or, you know, whether, whether they don't, um, whether they believe that they're getting on their own planet or they don't, that, you know, the, the difference that that makes in, in the potential or prospective member's mind is so incremental that, you know, to me, it's almost like, you know, just, just be honest about let your freak flag fly. Just, yeah, exactly. Let your, let your freak freak flag fly. I almost can't say that. Um, (laughs) because, because I think it's like so many things in the church that it's, it's all, it's worse to make it look like you're trying to sweep it under the rug, then it would just be to have it sitting out on, on the coffee table. Because when you try to sweep it under the rug, then it, then it makes it look like you think you've got something to hide. Like mm-hmm. you think it ought to be embarrassing mm-hmm. where, you know, if you just have it sitting there and yep, that's what we think. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, all religions believe wacky stuff. Yeah. And we're all about the same age. And I think that we would probably remember that when we were growing up, the emphasis was on be proud to be a peculiar people. And that is completely gone now. It's been replaced by we're Christians, we're Christians, we're Christians. We're just like you. Why can't we just, I don't, I, I would, I think I'd be a lot less annoyed and I'd be a lot happier with Mormonism right now if they would go back to that and embrace their weirdness. We're way off track. Sorry. 
People me, can't take the meat. They can only handle the, the milk. milk. It's for this, these days, these last days, Heather. Come on. <laughs> I guess let, so. let me respond to that, and then I'll hit the, uh, the last one on our list. Is that a, is that a nice little segue there? Sounds good. Yeah. Um, so here's my response to that, Heather. As much as we would like to have our, our freak flag flying in the wind, okay, as much as we would like to embrace some of these old things, there's a couple of problems. As soon as you start embracing some of the old things, then you start having to confront the things such as the church's views on race, such as some of the harder points of polygamy that we can't really answer. So in a sense, you're opening Pandora's box there. And I understand that a church that touts itself as the true and and only believing the only true church on the face of the earth and blah 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 i understand that we shouldn't be afraid to confront that stuff but at the same time there's difficult things that need to be confronted and instead of the apostate community um and i'm not trying to indict everybody on this because you know we all have our angles that we're going at but we're not allowed to try and feel out what actually happened here. It's you need to take an angle, you need to take a stance, and if you don't meet the apologetic side or the apostate side, your your um, own personal thought process doesn't matter. And so what I'm trying to say is we I'd love for us to be able to more openly acknowledge these types of things. But the problem is you and I both know that if that started happening, we would be lit up on the internet we would be lit up in the media, and we wouldn't have a chance to explore this on our own and to have the information out there. That's the one biggest problem. You know, Brant, I really respect you. I consider you a good friend. But what you've just said is, to me, the number one proof that the church isn't true. Because we started with prophets who boldly proclaimed that this is the true church, this is what we believe, either get on board with us or you're not practicing the one true religion. And we have slowly changed as magical thinking has left society, as people have become less willing to make claims that aren't, um, that they don't, that, that they know aren't true. I mean, to be blunt, I mean, you don't hear prophets talking about talking to Jesus anymore. You've, you've gone from these really bold proclamations to hiding behind a PR department and never making any bold statements, never prophesying about anything, never, never boldly proclaiming anything anymore. And that to me, it's just like, it's just a, like they know that they can't get away with the, the sort of outrageous claims that used to be made in the past. And that's to me proof that the church isn't true. Unfortunately, believe me, Heather, I would love for us to be able to get back to that point. I would love for us to quit hiding our tail every single time something difficult came about. And and maybe it's because I'm here in a place like Michigan where, you know, even though the church is a lot more sanitized than it used to be, I've gotten every single type of question. I've gotten every single type of allegation. I've had to and, – and I'm not saying I'm better than anybody. I'm just saying based on where I live, I've had to learn how to explain some of these things within my own worldview and explain them in normal words and phrases. Um, so I would believe me, it would make my life much easier when it comes to people <laughs> wanting to talk about Mormonism with me. If we could be more honest and open and have some of these bold statements. And if I could actually show someone, we have a prophet speaking and you know what, who knows what he's going to say. He might say that they've got new scripture. He might say this, he might say that the, the problem that I have is you're right. They hide behind a PR firm. And I think part of the problem with them hiding behind a PR firm is the fact that the PR firm is not telling them here is you guys do your own thing and we will make sure that we do the quote unquote 
damage control. We'll do the spin. We'll try and figure out how to explain this to lay people who don't understand Mormonism. The problem is they're hiding behind PR people that are telling them, this is how you get everyone to like you. And that's not going to fly when, you know. When they're they're confronted by people like me, (laughs) mean old states. When they're confronted by everything that's going on with the internet right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, Brand, I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, I, I think that they have a, I think that they have a real practical dilemma there, and, and, and I don't envy them that problem. Um, I mean, and I am, I'm inclined to view it the way that Heather does, but, I mean, I, I also think that there is, I mean, I at least can look at that and see some honor in what they're doing. Um, I mean, I, I don't take a, a dim view of them as human beings, as I know that you know some ex-members of the church do. I think that you're right that if they said, well, yeah, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna be real clear on three degrees of glory, then that may open the door for somebody to say, okay, good. Well then be real clear on race. What happened there? Be real clear on polygamy. And and I think that they're honest enough men to know that they don't really have answers for those things. Mm -hmm. And so they're not trying to give answers on those things. And, And maybe the only honorable path that they see is to, is to say, you know, well, we've got this responsibility. We've got the, this mantle that we think that we have. We're not going to lie about it. We're not going to pretend that we don't, you know, that we understand things that we don't. So that the most, you know, the most we can do is kind of shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, we don't know a whole lot about that. Which, you know, like Heather says, I mean, it's, it's not a great argument for, you know, still being in contact with heaven. But, you know, at least it's better than, you know, pretending that you know something that you don't. I, I don't envy them that problem. I, I don't know what else they, they could do under the circumstances unless they're ready to blow the whole thing up. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. We, I got us so completely off track on into this subject. Do you want to go to number one, Brant? Sure. Let's, let's go to number one. Number one, eternal progression. Uh, eternal progression, also known as exaltation, the, the concept that we can continue on and that we can become like God. Um, I won't say that there is nothing in the Book of Mormon that covers this. As far as us becoming like God, there's not a lot in there. But there is doctrine in there about exaltation. There is doctrine in there. Um, basically, when I look at exaltation, I don't look at it so much as Thus saith the Lord, you will become this, this, and this. But I'm looking at it as what inferences could be made. You have information in there um, talking about the nature of God and who God is. And and even though you, you know, like like I think it was Amy that talked about some of the Trinitarian things that, that creep up in there, you still have a lot of theological discussion about the nature of God, to which I kind of chalk up to uh, exaltation. However, if you're looking for uh, the plan for our progression, and I'm just reading this out of um, uh, the Gospel Principles Manual, the plan for our progression, the blessings of exaltation, the requirements of exaltation, you're not going to find that in there. And I would say that's number one on our list because that is, in a sense, the epitome of everything that it, that Mormonism encapsulates. If you look at the entire goal of Mormonism, it's to achieve that exalted status with you and your family. And it is surprising that they don't have uh, some explicit teachings in there uh, about that. Even even if you look at the additional scriptures in the Gospel Principles Manual when it comes to exaltation, it's one, two, three, four, five scriptures from the Doctrine and Covenants, which which I'll admit, even as a believer, was surprising to me. Yeah, no, I, I this is something that you don't really almost find anywhere in in the canon. Well, at least the part that I'm thinking of. I mean, I don't think of. 
what happens after you die and, and progressing after that point. I, it, it's an, it's an innovation, but I don't think of it as being as big an innovation because I think that if, you know, all the Christians out there who believe that they're going to live with God when they die and that they're going to become like him and that there are many mansions prepared, I'm, I'm not sure that it would be a shocking idea to them if they were to die and find out, oh, well, you know, we, we move along this path a little further. I think the real innovation is that God is an exalted man. Uh, I think that that's the thing that, that would be tough for any other Christian to swallow. And, and you don't find it in the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants. And and in fact, you know, you find it, of course, in the King Follett um, s- sermon. But um, that's another thing that it, it feels like there's been some backing away from. I mean, I guess everybody's familiar with Gordon B. Hinckley on the Larry King show, sort of famously having that question put to him and him sort of saying, we don't know much about that. Don't really teach very much about that. So I, I don't know how strong a teaching that is in the church now, although I, that may have just been a comment for, for public consumption. No, I, I, so, I think that, um, you know, you talk about the, that's one of the things that, that other Christians can't take as seriously as Christians. That's one of the things that is the biggest sticking point is simply we, we have the boldness to make those claims when it, it benefits us. And if it doesn't benefit us, we won't make the claims. But that's, that is one of the biggest problems that, uh, that we're always going to have with other evangelicals is we can't, we can't find a common ground to, to start with because, you know, you bring things like that up and it's going down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And, and, and I'll defend Mormonism here for a minute. I mean, if the Christian world, you know, thinks that the idea of progression is strange, well, what's their explanation for the cosmos? What's their explanation, you know, for how, for how things came to be? I mean, if they think God created everything, they still have to answer, you know, where did God come from? And if their answer is, well, we just always existed, is that any more or less preposterous than the idea that God somehow came along and represents the you know final step of an evolution of some kind? I mean, that's why I go back to, I don't have any sympathetic sympathy for the evangelicals or the other Christians who want to act like so much in Mormonism is weird. They, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're full religion. of weird themselves. All they don't have a, is weird. Yeah, they don't they don't have a better explanation for things than you know than Mormons do, um, you know I mean to sort of to sort of ground it in this discussion. I mean yeah, it's not something that you find too much of in the Book of Mormon, and I and I'll you know come back to that you know my overarching thing theme here is that it simply represents you know an evolution of of Joseph Smith, who at the time that he you know wrote or i mean in my opinion wrote or with had the assistance of others he had you know much more of a of a protestant and and particularly a methodist uh point of view and then there were simply you know innovations that that came along longer or came along later um i mean i, I would be interested to go back to the question that heather asked at the beginning of the podcast which you know i guess was what was you know I don't, how did you put that, Heather? What What are the most what important doctrines the, of Mormonism? Yeah, like what are the important basic fundamentals? Seems well, like yeah, ordinances. Me, go ahead. I just Namely, that separate yeah. Mormonism from anything else that make it unique. Yeah, let me let me frame that a, just slightly differently and say what are the biggest selling points of Mormonism. I mean, if you're if you're a missionary and you want to say, okay, well, you're a you know you may be a Catholic or you may be a Baptist, but let me tell you what we have that you don't have. What what would be on that list? Um, I mean, I, I'll, 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 go ahead. No, no, no. You obviously had a path you were going down. 
Yeah, I'll just say I'll make the argument that it's basically our top ten list. That it, you know, we know about eternal progression. You, you know, have you ever wondered where where you came from or where you're going? We know the answer to that. Um, you can be with your family for eternity. That you know, eternal marriage. The whole world's confused about the nature of God. We know what the nature of God is. We know what happens after you die. We, you know, we know that there's no hell. Um, you know, we have the priesthood on earth today. We have the, you know, direct line to God and the power to act for God on earth. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I've left anything important out if I just kind of go through that list backwards. So, I mean, and you can, you can take that however you want to, whether, you know, you view that as an indictment of the Book of Mormon, um, you know, or whether from a faithful perspective you say, well, we expect that things progress. I think that it's, that it's hard to argue that the things that, are, that have primacy in the church today that are the biggest selling points appear anywhere in, in, in the book that is the biggest tool that they use to sell them. I agree. I think that the Book of Mormon and how all of the all of those things are missing. I think that honestly, it's a problem that could be solved simply by saying that this is nothing more than a testament of Jesus Christ coming to the Americas. It's not where we get our theology and and quit um, claiming that it's like the keystone of the religion and in, in as far as our practice and our and our doctrine. And just say the the main reason that this book is important is because it's another testament of Jesus Christ interacting with humanity. You want him to become the community of Christ. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's more or less what they've done, right? Okay. Any uh, any final thoughts, uh, Brant or Amy? Nope, I think we summed it up. I I'm, think we slaughtered it. Yeah, we killed Sacrificially. it. Sacrificially. <laughs> Yeah, if 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 you've if you've stuck with us all the way through this podcast, thank you and and, and congratulations. You've I think you've made it to the end. Um, as always, the discussion continues at mormonexpression.com, and uh, I'd like to thank everybody for being here and just say that I I really in, enjoy the dynamic of this group here. It's kind of like a like a modern day Nauvoo expositor. It's almost like a like a Mormon <laughs> expositor. You know, that would be, like that a, would be, that would be a cool name for a podcast, wouldn't it? Yeah. What? I think it might work. That's Yay. just something for everyone to think about. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Good night.